very quick to step up and praise others, and I think we need to take a minute and just say thank you to her. So thank you for that. Hey, this morning, the Apostle John is going to be talking to us about his favorite subject, which is true love. Now, that right away tells your age, or that you like the Princess Bride, but this is the section in 1 John where he spends a lot of time talking about this topic of love and, and talking to us about what is it made of and what does it look like and how does it act in our lives and through our lives. And if you remember from some of the earlier sections of 1 John, he's already been talking about this a little bit. In fact, uh, if you have your Bibles, would you open them to 1 John? We're in chapter 4, but I want you to look at two other places where he begins this conversation with us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, he writes this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, and the Greek would read, feels angry with, resentful toward, bitter about, ill-disposed toward another believer. That person is still in the darkness. But whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And so John, in opening up this subject, wants us to understand that love and light have a lot to do with each other. If we are living in the light, we are actually loving each other the way God loves us. He mentions uh, love again in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. So you might just flip a couple pages over there. And uh, he says, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so not only is it an uh, imagery of light, but it's also an imagery of moving out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ. And he says, we have become individuals who are moving out of darkness and into light. And that is incredibly important for us. He makes a a key point in these earlier verses, and he says, love is not optional for a believer. The kind of love that he is describing here. Either in receiving it from God or in giving it to others, it is not an option. It is the standard by which we measure the authenticity of our faith. So that's a huge thing. Would you agree? This is an important subject that he gets to in 1 Peter or excuse me, 1 John chapter 4. Pastor Stephen Cole writes about John's comments in chapter 4, and this is where I, I hope to take us uh, today in verses 7 through 21. But uh, Stephen says this, By way of introduction, note that while love is the inevitable result of being born by God, it always is the outflow of being born by God. He says it is not the automatic result. Now, we need to pause and think about that. It's inevitable, it will happen if we have been born of God, but it's not automatic in in terms of its fullness. He says, John states in 1 John 4, 7, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So the implication is that the life of God imparted to us in the new birth manifests itself in love for others. That is the inevitable part of it. But then he goes on to say, if we are children of the one whose very nature is love, then we will be like our father. But at the same time, John commands us in 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. It's not automatic or effortless. So there is always room for growth in love. So John comes to this section in chapter 4, verse 7, through the end of the chapter, and he tells us four things. And I want to just preview them with you a little bit, and then we're going to read the passage together, but we're going to read it a little bit differently than you might normally read this in your text at home. We're going to put the 
definition for love into the text. But there's these four things he tells us. He says, number one, the real deal love that Christians are to feel and express to other believers comes from God and God alone. So he says to us, this is an other world emotion. It's alien to the human heart. It's a a strange and unnatural action for any of us to take. The kind of love he's talking about does not come out of the human heart. It only comes from God. So he tells us that, first of all, and we'll look at that in more detail in a minute. He also tells us that this true love of God has the robust ability to step into and deal with the wrath of God toward our sinfulness. Now, in our culture today, we often define God as love, and that is correct. God is love. But these other attributes in his nature and his character have to be accounted for. His holiness, his justice, his righteousness. And when sin exists in the world, there is the wrath of God toward it. But this love has this ability to step into that emotion of God, that wrathfulness toward our sin, and deal with it. And God does that toward us. Thirdly, John tells us that God's love is intended to permeate us. This is a beautiful description in the text. He says it is intended to so fill us that it assures us of our acceptance by him and provision uh, through him. It's just like a, a therapy dog that walks into a hospital room and when he enters, blood pressure gets lowered and pain levels go down and anxiety is reduced and feelings of loneliness disappear because of his presence. And when the love of God permeates us, fills our hearts, it causes these changes in our hearts and and removes fear of the future. And then fourthly, he's going to tell us that God's love perfects us. God's love actually changes us more and more into the image of Christ, who, who are people who can love people and love God. So we're going to look at four things today. They're on your notes if you want to follow along. God's love is presented to us. God's love propitiates God's wrath toward us. God's love permeates us, and God's love perfects us. Now, to get his point across, John uses a word that was foreign to their ears. They have a lot of terms for love in the Greek language. You all have probably studied them over the years. Uh, Phileo for a relationship, friendship love. Eros for this lustful kind of love. All of these different terms, but he picks a word that invests a whole new meaning into the idea of love. He uses the word agape. Now, that's also a familiar word for us today, but for them, it was a new concept. It was a new term. And he, uh, he writes it into this passage repeatedly. Take a look at 1 John 4, 7 through 21, just for a minute. Look in your English texts. Look for the word love. Do you see it there? Yes, Repeatedly. But he uses the word in every one of these places, the word agape. So I'm going to ask the guys up in the um, text to put on the, the definition, the basic definition of agape love. And here's what it is. We're going to go on beyond these two slides, guys, if you don't mind. So that one, skip that, skip the next one. Let's go to the simple definition. There it is. When John talks about love, this is what he's talking about. It is a sacrificial meeting of needs without charge. Sacrificial, I'm giving up something. I'm meeting a need that is known right around me, and I'm not asking anything in return. This is what agape means. So here's what I'd like to do with you this morning. 
we're going to put the entire passage up on the screen, one slide after another, and we're going to insert the definition of agape into the text wherever it says love. Now, this is going to become quite repetitious, but what I want to know is at the end of the reading of this text, does it change the way you think and you feel about loving other people? Because this is the love that God has given us for each other, and it's the love he's given us for the world. This is the love we saw at Camp Cosmic this week. People coming in and sharing their time sacrificially, the hobbies and crafts and things that they do, and meeting a need and not charging for it, not saying, I want something to come out of it. So, let's put the first slide up there. As we read it aloud together, if you don't mind, at the end of it, ask yourself, does this change the way I think about love? So let's start. Beloved, let us sacrificially meet the needs of others without charge. For sacrificially meeting the needs of others without charge is from God. And whoever sacrificially meets the needs of others without charge has been born of God and knows God. Next slide. Anyone who does not sacrificially meet the needs of others without charge does not know God, because God sacrificially meets our greatest need without charge. In this, God's sacrificial meeting of our greatest need without charge was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is the sacrificial meeting of our greatest need without charge. Not that we have loved God like this, but that he sacrificially met our greatest need without charge. Skip the us. And sent his son to the, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so sacrificially met our greatest need without charge, we also ought to sacrificially meet the needs of others without charge. No one has ever seen God. If we sacrificially meet the needs of others without charge, God abides in us, and his sacrificial meeting of needs without charge is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the sacrificial meeting of our greatest need without charge that God has for us. God is sacrificially meeting our greatest needs without charge, and whoever sacrificially meets the needs of others without charge abides in God and God in him. By this is sacrificially meeting the needs of others without charge perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in sacrificially meeting the needs of others without charge. Perfect sacrificial meeting of the needs of others without charge casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in sacrificially meeting the needs of others without charge. We sacrificially meet the needs of others without charge because he first sacrificially met our greatest need without charge. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not sacrificially meet the needs of his brother or sister without charge. Whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also sacrificially meet the needs of his brother and sister without charge. Wow. Well done. How many of you made it all the way through that? Take a drink of water. We're going to need it. Does that give you a different sense of how we are to love others? I hope it does. Because when I wrote this up this week, it impacted my heart. To think about every relationship I have in the Christian community, my family, those at work and in the world that we are commanded to love this way, and think about it. Do I actually do this? Do I actually give of myself to every person in a sacrificial way that meets a need in their life? And I don't ask them to applaud me. I don't ask them to say thank you. I don't ask them to do anything for me. And isn't it amazing that that is how God loves us? And he says, I will meet your greatest need for a new relationship with me, for forgiveness of your sins, for the removal of shame and guilt, for all the blessings that I want to pour into your life. I will love you this way. That should change us. That should change how we relate to our husbands and wives and kids and neighbors and people here at Trinity and people in the, in the world today. So let's go back to the four things that John wants us to understand in this passage. First of all, he says, God's love is provided to us. And you find it in verses 7 and 8. And he says, this love comes only from God. You're not going to find this kind of love anywhere else in the world or in life. It just does not exist in this fashion all the time. Now, we might say, well, there are times I can do that. I can feel that way toward others. But that's kind of um, paper towel love. You know, it's one time and, and then it's not around for the next use. We're able to sometimes act this way. But, but John says, if we're going to consistently be like this, this has to come from God. There is no other way to experience it. This is a love that happens at the moment of birth, rebirth. When we came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and we gave our lives to him and entrusted ourselves to him, he gave us this capacity to love. And a regeneration occurs in that moment. There's the birth of something brand new within us. It's giving us uh, the generation of something fresh and wholesome. Let me give you an example of that. A number of weeks ago, I shared with you that uh, our old Samsung refrigerator was dying, right? Talked to you about the ice buildup that was happening in the uh, refrigeration section. And in this last year, three different times, I've had to pull apart that whole section, defrost it with a hairdryer, takes about an hour and a half, put it all back together, and then it operates again. But when it's not operating well, when the ice is accumulating, what happens? There's a picture of my refrigerator right there. I've had to do that three times this year. And when that ice builds up, it hits the fan. And the fan sounds like. Is that annoying? <laughs> the only way to stop it is to open the refrigerator door. And it silences it. Because the fan turns off, right? So we actually took a spatula, wedged it in the top of the door. So there was a little crack open. So it wasn't knocking all the time. But then what happens? is the little bell goes off saying, your door is open. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. And it was driving us nuts, but every time I fixed it, it was like, great, we're done. 
Last week it happened the fourth time. And that's what this picture is from. Fourth time is it, kaput. And I thought, you know, there's 4th of July sales this weekend, right? <laughs> so tomorrow we have a new refrigerator coming in, and this one we're going to put the wooden stake in its heart and send it away. <laughs> we can't wait for that new refrigerator, right? Why? Because it's something that is giving us a rebirth of calm and quiet. And when we become followers of Jesus Christ, the old nature that desires the old things, that brings all the wreckage and havoc into our lives, is pushed to the side. Now, it doesn't go away completely, but it's pushed to the side. And in its place comes the presence of the Holy Spirit with all of the fruit of the Spirit and all of his comfort and control. And the more I spend time with the Holy Spirit, the more I get this regenerative result in my life. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? The old things have passed away, the new things have come. Look back at verse 8. I'm going to read it from our uh, translation up here. Anyone who does not love, that is, sacrificially meet the needs of others without charge, does not know God. Because God is love. He is a sacrificial God who meets people's greatest need without charge. And so as Christians, John is just saying to us, check yourself at the gate. Ask yourself, am I regularly sacrificing things in my life to meet the needs of others around me and I don't expect anything in return? Am I or am I not? That's his encouragement to us. Think about it. J. Haddon Robinson, one of my favorite older commentators on this passage, says this, do we take seriously John's words? We know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren, 1 John 3.14. Or do we know of Christians whom we dislike intensely? Do we hold in contempt those who have varying opinions, are immature and coarse, or don't agree with us on every issue? What about Christians of, a, of another ethnicity? Do we like them not only from a distance, but also when we are up close and personal? If love is the mark of a believer, can people tell that we belong to Christ? So the very first thing we realize is that God's love is presented or provided to us. But secondly, and we find this in verses 9 and 10, God's love has propitiated his wrath toward our sin. Look back at verses 9 and 10. I'll read them for you again here. In this, he says, in this, God's sacrificial meeting of our greatest need without charge was made manifest among us. It became real and clear and evident. He brings it out into the open. He makes it obvious in public. God's love was made obvious in this, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is the sacrificial meeting of our greatest need without charge, not that we've loved God like this, but that he sacrificially met our greatest need without charge and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice how God's love is made manifest to us. It's not in the virgin birth. It's not in Christmas. It is in Easter. God sent his son into the world. It doesn't say God was born into the world through Jesus. It says he was sent. He was a dispatched into this world, and he became the propitiation for our sins. Now, what is propitiation? It's one of those million-dollar Christian words that we need to turn into pocket change for us. 
It needs to be one of those everyday kind of things that we can just reach in here and go, yeah, I know what propitiation is, rather than thinking we can never attain it. Here's what it means. It simply means to satisfy the wrath of someone through the gift of something that is significant enough to meet that level of aroused emotion or anger and turn that wrath into favor. So it's this gift that satisfies the emotion and turns it into favor. Take your Bibles, if you will. Hold them open at 1 John. Turn to Romans chapter 8, just for a moment. I want to read for you about this event, this thing that Jesus did for us. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Folks, at one time we were under the condemnation of God. Because of our sinful actions and thoughts and words, we were under God's wrath, his condemnation. Verse 2 goes on to say, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We're not under the condemnation of the Mosaic law. We're not having to obey it fully or we will die eternally. We are out from underneath that we've been set free by the spirit of life. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, because I can't obey it, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says this event of sending Jesus Christ here to live that perfect life of obedience to the law, and then to sacrifice that perfect life on our behalf, removes us from the condemnation of God and places us in his favor. And the amazing thing is, in every other world religion, if you want to propitiate your God, you must bring the gift. But in Christianity, Jesus brought himself as the gift. So God is actually propitiating himself through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and not asking us to do that, but he gives us the freedom that comes out of that act of propitiation. Imagine that you are a district court judge. And you wear the black flowing robes every day, and you hand down sentences to criminals on a regular basis to wrongdoers. But one night, someone breaks into your home and commits a heinous crime against a member of your family. And now it becomes personal. And your anger is stirred up against that individual and at your personal loss. And you say to yourself, I will hunt them down, and they will pay. You have the law on your side. They deserve to be punished. They deserve what's coming at them. You're going to throw the book at them. But let's also say that your heart begins to develop a concern for that criminal. You've seen the dregs of humanity. You have watched them march through your courtroom. You have seen their sad and uh, difficult stories. You've watched the chains of pain they drag around with them. And you begin to say to yourself, I I have a concern for them. In fact, maybe it's even a compassion for them. 
And could it possibly even grow into a love for them? What would you be willing to do for them? Would you show up in court? Obviously, you're not the judge now. You're the plaintiff. And would you offer to forgive them? Would you be willing to write to them while they are in prison? Would you take out of your own resources and help their family with the personal needs while they are incarcerated? Would you do those kinds of things for them? Or could it possibly be that you might even show up in that courtroom and insist that you take their sentence? That you do the hard time for them? That you experience death row, you experience the threats of inmates, you experience the solitary confinement, and ultimately you face the executioner's chair for them. If you did that, you would begin to understand the love of God for us and the propitiation of Jesus who died in our place to satisfy God's wrath at our sin so that we would not be under condemnation but would be set free by the Spirit. H.A. Ironside writes this. This is the first manifestation of divine love. Creation proclaimed God's omnipotent power and wisdom, but creation could not proclaim his love. When God looked down on a world groaning under the sentence of death because of sin, a world of people who were alive to the things of this life but dead to the things of God, God found it in his heart to go down after these people and find a means of bringing whosoever will into newness of life. He said, in effect, I'm going to give them the greatest gift one could possibly give, my only one-of-a-kind son. I'm going to send him into the world that they may have life through him. So God sent his son into the world as an act of love. He dispatched him here for this one purpose, to become the propitiation for our sins on the cross. And Stephen Cole, Pastor Cole writes this, Christianity is not primarily a matter of a person deciding to stop sinful practices and to start doing morally acceptable practices. This is not Christianity. It is not a matter of changing from being a non-religious person who spends Sundays for himself to becoming a regular churchgoer. Rather, at its heart, Christianity is a matter of God imparting new life to those who are dead in their sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says that. That new life manifests itself in loving behavior. As born-again people who have experienced God's love, we should display his love to this wicked world that crucified the Son of God. So God's love is provided for us. God's love has propitiated his wrath toward us. And God's love permeates us. I love this part of what John writes in verses 11 through 16. He says, Beloved, if God so sacrificially met our greatest need without charge, we also ought to sacrificially meet the others of with, uh, needs of others without charge. No one who has, has ever seen God, but if we sacrificially meet the needs of others without charge, God abides in us. And his sacrificial meeting of needs without charge is excuse me, perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the sacrificial meeting of our greatest need without charge that God has for us. 
God is by nature sacrificial in his meeting of our greatest need without charge, and whoever abides in sacrificially meeting the needs of others without charge abides in God, and God abides in him. Do you get the sense here that God's love is intended to permeate us, to abide in us, and to flow through us? You saw in our video this morning of Cosmic Kids a lot of sponges being used throughout the week. And as I read this passage, it occurred to me that this is a lot like us as individuals. God takes his love and he actually permeates us to the point where we are so saturated by it that it flows out of us. So if you put a sponge into water, by the way, what is the definition of a sponge? What is it? It's something that absorbs moisture, right? And then allows it to come out. So folks, when we abide in God and his love abides in us, we are like that sponge. And then when the world squeezes us, what should come out? The love of God. Now, I spent a good part of yesterday with my second sponge because there are times that individuals can think, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, and when they go through life, there's very little water or love in them. I actually saturated this in lacquer yesterday. It's as hard as a brick. But doesn't it look like a sponge? John is saying to us, look, folks, you can look and talk like the right thing. But if love is not coming out of you because of what God has put in you, then in reality, you're not truly a sponge. You're not truly a follower of Jesus Christ. And he says this not in a condemning way, but in a cautionary way. He says, I want you to have this in your life. And it comes, interestingly, through the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 says this. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit? What's the first one? Love. Agape. Sacrificial giving to the meeting of needs without charge. So pause for a moment, would you, with me? These are the questions I've been asking myself this week. Consider your relationships with your family members. Is this the relationship you have with them? You see a need in your family. Do you sacrificially give up something of your time or energy or money or attention and meet that need and say, hey, it's fine, I'm just happy to love you? Does that happen in our families? Does that happen in our church where we see the need of a ministry, we see the need of an individual, and we step up and we say, God, I will sacrifice my time. I will give of my abilities. I will be that person who will step into this need, and I will give something up to help them, and, and I won't ask anything in return. And do we do that with our community, where we see a need? And this is a church that loves the community. We love people through Micah House, and we have all of these ways that we express this love, but do we as an individual in the community do this as well? There's a fourth thing John says to us this morning, and that is God's love is being perfected in us. So, by the way, folks, if, if you're like me, and there are points where I say, I'm not doing that the way I feel like I should. It's okay. 
Because God says, we are going to be perfected in this process. You don't have to just suddenly explode with it, but it's something God will continue to do in you. Look at verses 17 through 21. By this is sacrificially meeting the needs of others without charge, perfected with us. It's changing over time. Lisa, Jesse, and I are going to be going to Montana in a couple of weeks. We're going to have some wonderful guest speakers here. We're taking a break to go, go visit our grandsons who moved there in February, my daughter and son-in-law. And uh, one of the things on my bucket list is to fly fish, right? Now, I've been a stream fisherman my entire life. I've got all the equipment for that. But my dad tried fly fishing, and so he kind of passed on to me his equipment, right? So I, I know that when I get to Montana, I will instantly be a good fly fisherman. <laughs> I've never used the equipment, but who cares, right? It's going to be an instantaneous just the ability to catch that big one using fly fishing equipment. And we all laugh at that because obviously that is not happening. I'm actually going to have to find somebody who knows what they're doing and say, can you help me? And this is what we do when we come to Jesus Christ. We say, I am not this loving, sacrificial person who meets needs without charge. It doesn't happen in me that easily. God, can you help me with this? And the Holy Spirit says, absolutely. I am thrilled to help you love others in this way. This is my nature. This is the way I do things. And the text tells us that when we begin to have this perfected in us, it takes away fear, fear of the future. Now, we know that there is a judgment day coming, but actually for a Christian, it's a slightly different type of judgment day. For the lost, for the unbeliever, those who have rejected Jesus Christ, it is a determination of eternal destiny. For us, the scripture is clear, it's a question of rewards. How have we lived our lives in such a way as to have compiled in heaven resources by which we can use and operate in our lives in heaven. What have we sent ahead, the scripture tells us. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of God, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation of their salvation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So John writes to us here and he says, look, I know that as you grow and go through life, you're going to have moments where you wonder about the future, about that day. And whether it'll be a good day or a bad day for you as a follower of Jesus Christ, will there be rewards or loss of rewards? And he says, but your fear is taken away by this love. Perfect love casts out fear of judgment. And so we, the more we practice this love and let the Holy Spirit practice it through us, the more we have this confidence that on that day we will be able to stand before Jesus and say, yes, you loved people through me. And I was able to do the things you wanted me to do. It was costly. It was hard. It was difficult. But God, I was so thankful that you lived through me. You loved through me. This year in Yosemite, if any of you are planning on going or have gone, you know it's one of the most record seasons 
for the waterfalls, right? In fact, there are waterfalls that have not been there for 40, 50, 60 years. And the amazing thing is they've had this incredible snowpack. In fact, I want you to see a, a short video from the ranger station up there talking about this year and the snowpack. So guys, let's go ahead and run that. This is the biggest year we've ever had. Waterfalls, both old and new, can be seen at every turn. After record rain and snow totals from back-to-back -back winter storms, the mountains above are home to a massive snowpack. Now, as the temps heat up, the big melt is on. Everybody says this was the year to be here. Breathing life into new falls, not seen since before the West's decade-long mega drought, while supercharging the beauty of some of the nation's biggest. I'm standing at the base of Yosemite Falls, the tallest waterfall in North America, and park officials here say they've never seen it like this. In February, a 54-year-old snowfall record was shattered after 40 inches fell in just one day. An April heat wave forced the closure of portions of the famed National Park, and more than 50% of the snowpack is still up there. Steve Patterson, NBC News, Yosemite National Park. 40 inches in one day. Now, if my math is right, it's about three and a half feet in one day. And that massive snowfall is melting and now creating this torrent of water over these waterfalls. And it's such a beautiful image of what God does for us. The love of God is like that snowpack that is just so deep and so thick and so enduring. And as it melts and heads toward the waterfall of our lives, it cascades over. And folks, it's inevitable when we walk with the Holy Spirit, that that will happen. You don't have to grunt to make it occur. It's an act of God. And so as we end this section, John writes to us simply in verses 19 through 21. Listen to what he says. We sacrificially meet the needs of others without charge because he first sacrificially met our greatest need without charge. If anyone says, oh, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he doesn't sacrificially meet the needs of his brother or sister without charge, whom he has seen. How can he possibly love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also sacrificially meet the needs of his brother and sister without charge. So may I ask us this morning, is this us? Are we born of, of the Holy Spirit? Have we confessed the name of Jesus Christ? He is Lord and Savior. Do we have this new birth, this regeneration within us that pushes aside the old and brings in the new? And we see the evidence of that because we are loving other people in a way that is so unnatural to ourselves. It's sacrificial instead of selfish. It meets a need instead of demanding something for myself. And it says, it's okay, don't worry about it. I'm happy to do it. We see that in the love of Christ. And as we take communion this morning, this is what we celebrate. The fact that God loved you and I so much that he was willing to send his son into this world to become that sacrifice, that propitiation, the satisfying of God's wrath at my sin so that I am now freed from condemnation. I am now given the opportunity to live life in a totally different fashion because of Christ. That's what communion stands for, the broken bread, the cup that says Jesus came as a human being, God in the flesh, that he shed his blood on the cross, and the outcome is us, the body of Christ, saved and redeemed. 
So if you don't have a, a cup yet, I'd encourage you to grab one. We have some stations up front here. There are some in the back. We're going to celebrate communion together. And as we do, would you just tell the Lord how grateful you are for his amazing love? We sang about it a lot today. We've seen it through Cosmic Camp this week. We see it in many ways here at Trinity. Thank him for the way he has loved you, sacrificed for you, met your greatest need, and said, you don't have to do anything to earn that. It's a gift. If you're here this morning and you've never experienced that gift of God, you've never looked at Jesus Christ and said, that is the person, that is the individual, the God-man who has paid for my sins, my faults and failures, You've never experienced that new life. You've never been given that love, although it's available for whosoever will may come. I invite you, while we take communion, just to let the Lord know if you would like that gift today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't leave here without it. Jesus at the Last Supper took the bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, eat it in remembrance of me. After eating the bread, he took the cup. And you have to remember there are on a Jewish table four cups. And they were drank from throughout the meal. The fourth cup is the cup he is holding. And in Jewish tradition, it was called the cup of redemption. The cup that memorialized Israel coming out of Egypt. And he takes the cup of redemption. And he says, this cup is the new covenant. Guys, disciples, you've, if you've watched The Chosen, just picture that for a minute. Guys, You've always thought of this meal as a celebration of freedom from slavery in Egypt. I'm telling you, it is a new deal, a new covenant. And it's in my blood, not the lamb on the, lamb on the um, doorpost. It's a new covenant in my blood. And when you participate in this, you are given this freedom from the law of Moses when I die for you. You are given a new life, a new inner resource, the Holy Spirit. He said, as often as you take this cup and drink it, remember me. We're going to invite our worship team back on the stage while I pray. Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, we are privileged to speak to you in that fashion because you have loved us in the person of Jesus Christ. You've turned history on its head. You've taken our hearts and turned them inside out, Father. That these human hearts that are so self-centered, so self-focused, much like that sponge that is just saturated with the lacquer, Father, without you, we at one time lived in this world saturated by worldly wisdom, by the lust of the flesh, by the desire of the eyes. Father, we lived for ourselves. And even though at times we were generous and magnanimous and really tried to do the right thing, it was not a permanent condition. It was paper towel love. 
But you, God, have loved us in a way and poured your love into our hearts in such a manner that we can love others sacrificially. We can meet needs. And it doesn't bother us that nobody says thank you. It doesn't bother us that uh, we don't get anything out of it. God, we're just so glad to give because you have given to us. And so, Father, we celebrate the life of Jesus today. We celebrate the love of God. And we pray, God, that as we move forward from this place, as we leave church today, this thought of John's would echo in our hearts that we would become more and more like Jesus in the way he loved because you enable it in us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.